Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to today's episode of Wise Up. Today we're joined by Simone Thompson. Hi, Simone. Hi. Simone is the Managing Director of ST Consult Pty Ltd, a boutique consultancy specialising in providing tailored and pragmatic advice and services to financial services entities. Her areas of expertise are governance, compliance and risk management, product and operational strategy and group life insurance. Prior to launching ST Consult, Simone spent two years in the role of Risk and Compliance Manager for Australian Ethical Investment and 10 years as a consultant and director of PFS Consulting. Simone is also a non-executive director of Together Trustees, a superannuation trustee holding an extended public offer RSE licence, which currently manages $26 billion on behalf of over 150,000 members of Catholic Super and Equip Super. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome, Simone. So tell us a little bit about your background, Simone. Uh, Well, I um, came straight out of university not really knowing very much about the superannuation industry. Um, I did a law degree but decided about halfway through that I didn't want to be a lawyer. (laughs) And so uh, I had a family friend who was running PFS Consulting at the time and I just rang him up and said, uh, I've just moved to Sydney, do you have any EA work uh, whilst I get settled? Gave me three days of work, ten, turned into 10 years of work and the beginning <laughs> of a career. So um, yeah, it certainly wasn't planned, but um, that's how I ended up in this space. So uh, yes, yeah, spent 10 years at PFS consulting to trustees of super funds um, and setting up governance and compliance and risk management frameworks. That was a, a great experience, but after 10 years, I needed a bit of in-house experience as well. So One of my clients at the time was Australian Ethical Investment. They um, opened up an opportunity for a full-time role within the business, uh, which I accepted, and I spent two years there running uh, risk and compliance across their super fund and their seven managed funds, Um, which, again, was a fantastic experience because you learn a lot more about what it looks like within a trustee office on a day-to-day basis. Uh, So after two years there, we decided to have a bit of a career break, my husband and I, and we spent... um, just over two years on the road travelling around Australia in a caravan doing reverse um, nomads. Yeah, <laughs> <Great> nomads. <laughs> um, just, uh, we, we, we both just needed a bit of a break to figure out what was next. So uh, we decided to have some fun along the way. Um, whilst we were on the road, people kept contacting me about small little projects and that's where ST Consult was really born out of a need um, to do this kind of consulting risk and compliance work. Um, And I realised that what I really like doing is working with a number of different clients at the same time and and running your own consultancy gives you the opportunity to do that as well. So started ST Consult on the road uh, and then it really just got too busy to to be trying to juggle it in a uh, caravan setting. So um, then, yep, settled into full-time role. And, uh, yep, have been... I think that started about two years ago, so I've been going for about two years. Um, now I have a, a full-time person working with me as well and just really enjoying what we're doing. So 
What were some of the challenges that, that you had setting up ST Consult? Uh, if you had I, any. I think, <laughs> I think the challenge is that you're a jack of all trades. So uh, the things that you're used to having in a business environment, like having someone to help with IT and someone to help with marketing, you don't have anything of that. You are anything and everything uh, from invoicing to marketing to uh, trying to figure out how to set up your computer and email and uh, so I think there have been challenges along the way. Um, and like with any small business, you're very hesitant to say no to work. So you're often uh, running the gauntlet of having a lot on your plate all the time. And then I think the additional extra of working from home full time, you've really got to make an effort to have a difference between your house life and your work life when it's all meshed into one. So, yeah. Yes, we're hearing you with that, <laughs> Chief Bottle Washer and Financerer and yep. Yep. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the sorts of things that you um, learnt from going from, say, PF Consult to um, Australian Ethical. What were the sort of things that you found were, like, really a main difference? I discovered a lot more empathy for... Um, for people that work within trustee offices of superannuation funds. So when I was a consultant, you'd do a piece of work and you'd put a whole lot of recommendations into the client. And then it might be six months later and nothing's been done about those recommendations. And as a consultant, you're like, well, come on, guys, this is pretty serious. You need to get going. But when you work inside a trustee office, everyone's wearing five different hats uh, they're all doing as much as they can, but your recommendations are only one set of recommendations from one consultant and they might have you know, five or six different consultants and they're doing different things at the same time. So I discovered, um, I think I've developed a lot more patience about what it takes uh, for people to actually deal with the information that you're giving them as well um, and and finding better ways of making that work in an environment where people are just trying to run a business day by day too. And I think at PFS I didn't have that understanding um, and working in at Australian Ethical really did give me that better understanding which I've then been able to take at ST Consult um, and probably become a much better consultant for, for that understanding. Yeah, there is a bit of a change towards um, that sort of in-house outsourced service at the moment, isn't it? It's almost even, you know, you don't really take on an in-house role, but you do help with that implementation and embedding and, you know, the overflow of resource. Yeah, and certainly that's exactly really what I do now is that I work with a lot of entities that aren't really big enough to have a full-time compliance person uh, on the books. So I fill that role, but for a lot of my clients, I feel like a member of um, a member of the team. Um, and it, I work with all people across the business. And it's, yeah, I really enjoy working in that small to medium sized space where you get that contact with everyone from the CEO to um, the member advocate team to everyone. Um, and you lose that as soon as you move up into that, I don't know, even 50 plus employees. And financial services, it's just so highly regulated, isn't it? And with Royal Royal Commission on top of that, have you found that that's given you more opportunity for consulting because Um, of those changes? It's an interesting space. Because of my board role with an industry fund, I have to be very careful about perceived and actual conflicts of interest. So I tend not to work directly with uh, what 
you would understand to be normal trustees of superannuation funds. I work with fund promoters um, who are still governed by the legislation but not in the same way that that a standard trustee of a super fund is. And so my job's almost a little bit harder with the Royal Commission of figuring out what these guys should do um, as better practice versus what they have to do as uh, fund promoters versus what the differences are if you were a, a standard trustee operating in the space as well. And um, Simone, have you noticed, um, I guess, over the last sort of 10, 15 years, that sort of dynamic shift in super funds as a whole? They're really sort of, um, I guess, wearing a different hat nowadays to what they were in the past? incredibly more professional than it was even in my short career of you know 15 years or so um, the professionalism of the trustee offices the number of staff that are in there the engagement with service providers all of that is a huge difference to where it was 15 years ago Um, the board um, and the education of boards and the willingness of boards to get involved with the product and the services all of that has enhanced so much. I mean, obviously, we've seen a a considerable shrinking of the market compared to the number of super funds there were as to now. And I think in 10 years time, there'll be a lot more, uh, a lot less super funds um, there. And I think that's just led to a more professional setup as well. Do you think that's as a result of um, additional red tape and more regulatory hoops to jump through? Or what do you think the reasoning behind that would be? It's a bit of everything. I think it's a, a matter of scale a lot these days as well, like uh, administration services, insurance, everything like that is very expensive. And if you're not running a fund with a number of members and um, a, a significant amount of funds under management, it's hard to get good services at a good price and the government is constantly pushing a you uh, a message out to the public that you shouldn't be paying very much for your superannuation there's a, uh, a requirement on trustees of super funds to try and find good value um, and pass on lower fees and lower cost to members but things still need to be paid for and so unless you are a larger fund you can often struggle at that level having said that I'm a massive advocate for niche funds um, and I'm probably not such an advocate for um, funds for everyone uh, where you're simply just a number. Um, I do think there's a role for smaller funds in the industry as long as they run well and that they can prove they have a business plan which will, um, you you know, so that they'll be a a worthwhile fund and will continue to grow. Mm. So with the ability for people to access... Um, superannuation, the ten thousand uh, dollars out of the out of the pandemic. For those that met the criteria, what sort of impact do you think that's going to have long term? I think it's going to have a huge impact. Um, um, I want to be very careful that I'm not anti people that access their money because uh, this is an incredibly unusual time, one of those black swan events mm. that you know I never thought I would see in my lifetime and I understand that there have been people that have been significantly impacted by that and so having access to effectively $20,000 over six months period of time can be the difference between staying in your house or, or not for some people but what people don't understand is that money wasn't 
there just for a rainy day. That's to fund your retirement when you're no longer earning a wage. You take that money now, that's money you don't have later on. Um, And so there's a real trade-off. And I think um, some of that messaging got lost in the government's willingness to just say, well, this this is the fix for all of you. You can access your money um, you know, just access it as an easy fix or it's not an easy fix. Um, and I'm not sure that individual people in Australia should be responsible for um, carrying the burden of fixing short-term problems. Um, and I also don't think the government has really thought about what this means in the longer term in terms of we're already at a point in time where the age pension is not sufficient to live on for most people how is that impacted in 20, 30 years' time where you've now, then you've got people retiring who have 20000 less in their account than perhaps they would have had otherwise? Yeah, they've sort of dialled the clock back a bit in that regard, haven't they? Because they've just come off the back of, you know, years' worth of work, decades' worth of work to grow super, help um, with an ageing population, um, a lot of the baby boomers and things like that um, that don't have maybe large retirement funds and things like that. Um, maybe they've sort of set the clock back a bit. Yeah, I think so. I think the government has a real uh, responsibility now to do things to help people to boost their super back up again. So things like getting to the 12% SG contributions far sooner than... Um, is planned to um, to make it easier for people to make voluntary contributions into their accounts. So maybe that is a, an additional tax break or, or something like that. Um, education pieces as well. The other piece that came out of uh, people accessing their super early is that for those who have lower balances um, who may have had insurance on their account, if they withdrew all of their money out of their account to get it access early, they've also lost insurance. Um, and again, that's a massive issue for some people down the track who might not have realised that getting this money now had a larger impact on whether they're insured down the track as well. So, And they're things that super funds tried really hard to communicate to members, but they had really short time frames in which to do it. Um, people just wanted access to their money, didn't, you know, we'll deal with the consequences later. And I, I get the the fear, I think, that impacted the first round of withdrawals where people were just like, we need to get our money. What happens if the banks or the super funds collapse? You know, I think this time around it's a little bit more measured. But um, I do worry about the the lack of education about what some of the longer-term implications are. I think if they didn't have cash balances sitting there, you're selling down shares and not an ideal market either, so... Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, there's been a huge impact on the super funds themselves in terms of having to come up with a lot of extra money in a short period of time yeah, and, and selling in, in not such a good market as well. So, um, you know, and that again then has implications as well because for super funds, a lot of their contracts and things like that are built on the amount of funds under management. Mm. You lose a heap of money out of your super fund. There's, hu- there's much more implications so have, has there been any sort of um, reporting or statistics yet about um, what those sort of FUM impacts have been yet for some of those funds? There's lots of reporting out there. Um, APRO is running uh, weekly reporting about how much money is being taken out of the system. All the super funds themselves will have reports about you know what that's doing to their actual funds under management 
levels. Um, uh, it's interesting that Jane Hume, who's a senator in this space, has, has really come out and said, you know, funds need to stop whinging about how much money they're losing, which I think is just a really uninformed, unhelpful <laughs> comment <laughs> because, you know, it, it impacts on, on everything as well. So, you know, we're, what we do know is that, that there's been um, something like 9.6 billion, I think it is. Yeah, 9.1 billion has been taken out of the industry in early release payments. Wow. Yeah, and that's only early release because of COVID. That's not early release on normal financial hardship grounds or compassionate grounds or or anything like that. That's just one big hit in six months and we've still got until the end of September for people to access. Yeah, so I think I guess the long-term effects are yet to be felt for the super industry as a whole. Yeah, and we won't really know for, say, really the next 20 years or so where those who probably took out the most now um, are nearing more their retirement age. So, you know, if you're 20 years old right now and you take out 10 grand, you're probably not, it's not going to impact you that much because providing the world goes back to some kind of normality, you should be able to earn a reasonable amount. But if you're 40, 50 and you've taken out 20 grand now, you're not, odds on you're probably not likely to put 20 grand back in again and that's going to make a huge difference yep. unless there's uh, the government gives some tax concessions to encourage people to do it yeah and then you've got the added problem too of women as well who um you know if they're already out of the workforce for a period of time because they're the primary um carer for children as well they're already impacted by that and having much lower superannuation levels than their male counterparts this is just another kind of nail in the coffin it for is. women in that space as well. Yeah. And I guess the, um, even the wage disparity as well over time, even when they are in the workforce, is another contributing factor to that. Yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. So in terms of, um, I guess, you know, even going back maybe 10 years ago, the government used to offer a lot more um, co-contribution incentives and things like that, they yep. might really have to consider some of those sort of options again. Yeah, I mean, there is still a co-contribution option out there as well, but it's only really for lower income earners. Um, you, you know, I think, I think there is an argument to say that those who earn a little bit more money as well should be incentivised to put more into superannuation too. Um, look, it's not an enviable position being a policymaker in this space and, you know, I, I, I certainly wouldn't um, want to say that I could do it better or worse than anyone that's currently doing it, but I think that there needs to be quite a bit of liaison with industry um, in the next couple of years to figure out the best way forward. Do you think that'll result in a bit of a compression to the trustee business model as well? Um, you know, having to bring a lower price point to administrative services and things like that? Definitely. I mean, we've already seen that in the last couple of weeks as well with a couple of larger funds announcing um, that they're heads of agreement to start working together to, to bring themselves together as well. And I think that... Um, 
you know, the board that I sit on together was the first kind of one that did a joint venture of two funds coming together saying, you know, if we pull our resources and we pull our membership base, then we, we can make a better argument in the market to get a better deal for services and things. Um, and now we've seen a few others who are also looking at similar style setups too. Um, I think the other thing is that trustees are becoming much more professional too. So when you are looking for directors, um, you're really looking at uh, professional directors in that space too. And, and that's a smaller pool than perhaps it was previously where uh, there would be a lot more member representative directors and and then directors who come out of certain industries and things like that, whereas most boards are now moving towards you know at least a third independent, if not almost wholly independent boards as well. And with the Royal Commission, there was a bit of a separation between product and advice and a lot of the banks sort of, um, I guess, uh, either took away one arm or the other um, because of perceived conflicts of interest, et cetera, or disclosure of remuneration models. Um, with that, and I guess the super funds still tend to offer some sort of financial advice in that space and they sort of went down the path of offering more of that type of advice to their members. Um, with sort of financial advice being cost prohibitive to a lot of people in the first place, do you think there'll be maybe an increase in that sort of thing from the super funds trying to, I guess, educate their members on financial advice? Advice is such a tricky area. Um People need advice. Uh, it, it's funny when you work in the industry full time, it, it all comes so naturally to you, but it, you don't have to step very far away for people to ask really simple questions like, what's a financial services guide? Or, you know, what, why do I need to read a PDS? What is a PDS? Things like that. It's just the level of um, disengagement with your own wealth is really high and advice is a way of, of generating that engagement that you need to understand your own you know, financial wellbeing going forward. But evidence has shown and the Royal Commission sh uh, really brought to light that there's a lot of people that have manipulated that space as well. And so there's a lot of hesitancy from everyday public to pay for something where they think that there's a kickback or, you know, am I really getting the right advice? Um, so it's a difficult area because I'd like to encourage people to get advice that's personal, about their own personal objectives and needs. Um, but uh, finding the right people to provide that advice with the right incentives and doing it, you know, really for, for the client and not for themselves is, is difficult. Um, I, I, super funds that are offering full comprehensive advice are constantly running that gauntlet between trying to offer a service and a product that's worthwhile to their membership and just all of the rules and regulations that they have to meet. And, you know, it costs money to produce statements of advice. It costs money to do all of the background time and effort in, 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 fine, in doing the client discoveries and things like that. So it's not going to be a free service. And that's where I think the Royal Commission did a little bit of a disservice by painting it as being uh, a really expensive 
service and, and, you know, there's no way that members should be paying for this. Well, you pay for what you get, you know, and I, and I think people need to understand that they, they will need to pay for the service to be worthwhile. Otherwise, you will see, like the banks have and like some of the super funds have, a walk away from the advice business because the risks are probably too great. It's just one of those industry things, isn't it? This, you know, the the advice model has always been that the product, the commission comes out of the product, and then we've now gone to a full fee for service model. I think it's about the confidence of the advisors and mm. the services that they're providing yep. to be able to sort of you know charge the fees that they need to to yep. give good advice. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we don't want to see you know 130 page long SOAs because <laughs> the clients can't understand them. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But if we had a world where uh, we started in high school with and educating people about wealth management as well so that you didn't leave high school and just start your first job and get introduced to this thing called super that you don't really understand and then you know you, you go for a loan to buy your first car and you don't really understand the difference between getting a loan through a bank or getting a loan through a car dealership and and all these little things this practical wealth management that if that was taught at schools people would come out with that knowledge with a starting point you know yeah. and yeah it's like um i think the banker they're called coming into the schools and trying mm. to do that sort of early financial education piece it's really fundamental isn't it yeah yeah i mean i did commerce at school where it taught me how to read a balance sheet you know realistically for the majority of people that's not going to be something that is of any use at all but actually understanding you know what credit is what loans are what superannuation is all of that type of thing would be knowledge that would help people along the way oh, at least you got to learn what a balance sheet was I think when I learned commerce at school they used to make you bring in all your toiletries and read the back of them to work out what a monopoly was and you used to have to find Unilever on the back of your toiletries so yeah it's come a long way um yeah so um with the financial advice piece what do you think in terms of um like the emerging robo advice type um, things or the, um, I think it's raise type um, micro investment models and things like that as a more of a, an affordable option to some people. Yeah, look, I don't have any problems with that kind of rounding up idea as well. Um, you know, especially in a in a world now where we don't really use actual money very often so you know it's not like in the old days where you'd go home and you'd chuck all your coins in a peer bank and then you'd take that to the bank and now the rounding up idea is a good idea I think from that perspective in terms of robo advice I think it's it is the way forward but I haven't really seen a product that really impresses me that much and I think that's the that's the same for a lot of people in the superannuation space is that it'll often come up in a three to five year business plan or oh, let's investigate robo advice and so you know a, a group of consultants will be hired to provide an overview of the market and they get the report and it's like well there's kind of all these half products out there but no one's really nailed it yet um, and I think that's why it hasn't really taken off that much because no one's really got got there yet so what's your experience in dealing with the regulators in this space and your top tips on how to um (laughs) have a good working relationship with those regulators um 
The, the primary thing is just remember regulators are just normal people doing their job. <laughs> and um, I, I've always just tried to have a really upfront relationship with regulators. Um, it, incidents and breaches will happen in any industry at any point in time. Um, just the nature of human error means that that will, will happen. So there's no use being scared about talking to a regulator about an issue that you're experiencing. You just need to be upfront about it and come to them with a plan about how it's being fixed. Um, I just, I, I feel like if you're engaging with regulators regularly um, and that you have a good working relationship with those that are close to you, when you do have issues and concerns, it's much easier to raise them in that kind of environment. If you foster an environment within your company where regulators are seen as the people that you want to hide everything from for fear of getting into trouble, you know, that that's just going to cause you more problems if you end up with issues that you need to discuss as well. Yeah. We had a royal commission, really, isn't it, because of, because of that? Yeah. Yeah, systemic that's cultural like relationship, isn't it? You just build the trust. That's exactly right. It's the same with auditors, with, you know, with anyone in that space who is asking you questions about your business. If you are uncomfortable about answering those questions or frustrated at answering those questions, then perhaps have a think about is that an outcome of your own governance model or your own compliance model um, because if you are comfortable with the way that you are operating things and you should be able to answer what's being asked of you. Uh, so what would your sort of I guess um, top three tips be to people who are in this space that may not um, have the right um, governance models in place at present or the, maybe the right working relationships in place at present? What would your sort of um, top tips be to them that where they can't afford a full-time resource? I'd certainly investigate all the options that are out there now for um, assistance in, in specific areas. So, for example, if you are looking to develop a risk management plan and a structure, then look for um, a consultancy that's got real specialist skills in that area. The same with governance, the same with compliance. There are so many people like the ST consults of this world and probably the three wise hours as well that are doing this kind of work and um, you can find the right people to help you in your business really easily. But perhaps before you do that, you need to get a really clear idea about what it is that you want to achieve. Um, it's no use engaging uh, consultants to come into the business if you don't really know what you're trying to do as well. And it's okay if you if you need to talk that through with consultants, but you need to have a bit of an idea about what you what you're trying to achieve first of all. Um, and then yeah, reach out, reach out to the networks. There's so many people out there. There's um, there's so many good people that have recently come out of the big four that are, that are now running their own consultancies, doing great work in a whole heap of spaces across the whole of financial services. Uh, so, yeah. And have you found there's a bit more risk consulting work? I Well, there probably is, but I don't do a lot of it. <laughs> um, look, I, I will do risk reviews and I will build risk management frameworks but it's not something I particularly like doing so I tend to to handball those on to other people that I know that really do like that work but it is great to see that a lot of people are really engaged with understanding the importance of 
discovering what your risks are within the business and articulating them and then finding controls around them as well and realising that it's not just the job for that one little compliance manager sitting over in the corner to run risk and compliance that everyone in the business has to be aware of risk and compliance and what it means for them so um, I I, I like that the industry is really moving in that way Um, yeah I just try not to get too involved in it. So has there been any times I guess in your corporate career whether it be in-house or external, that you've seen things that um, you've kind of looked back on and gone, oh, I really wish I had done that differently or with the benefit of hindsight, there's something that, um, you know, whether it be yourself or someone else that you've seen that you've gone, actually, you could have done it a better way? I think it's all just a learning experience, Um Being a young, when I started in financial services, a young female presenting to boardrooms full of males in their 50s plus was quite a daunting space to be. I mean, I love presenting and talking, so I always saw it as a challenge, but I look back um, on my time then and I think that perhaps um, I needed to have a little bit more sympathy for the fact that sitting around a boardroom are people that may not do this for a full-time job you know they're they're sitting on a board and they're doing the very best that they can but they they might have a career that's completely different to this board position and so you can't speak in acronyms you can't speak in assumptions you need to to really break it down and I think as a younger consultant that wasn't something that I was so good at I was a little bit more interested in in pressing um, an older room full of older blokes rather than actually kind of helping them more and I think um, that's what I really try and do now at ST Consult is say like nothing is beyond you we can work this out together you don't need to be an expert in this field that's why you've got me Um, so let's just let's just get to a better place for everyone yeah Yeah. and I I think too you always try and juggle um, the sensitivities in the room and not um you know, tell them how to suck eggs, essentially, really. Um, they're yeah. all well-experienced, well-knowledgeable, you know, have a really – a lot of them have a lot of impressive backgrounds. But, yeah, um, yeah just – But about. it's almost getting them to understand that, you know, a lot of them are dealing with risk and compliance in their own business, but they would just never call it risk or compliance. You know, it's just like, well, this is operations. This is just what I do on a day-to-day basis. So yeah. I'm thinking, well – Think about how you think about the risks to your own business or in the role that you're performing on a day-to-day basis and what do you do to mitigate that? That's exactly what we're doing here in the super fund. What are the risks and how are we mitigating them? So, uh, yeah, I think I've just got a lot better at explaining and bringing people along uh, the journey as well. So with the boards that you sit on and the boards that you work with, um, have you seen change in diversity on those boards in terms of age and in terms of women yes in terms of age and race no no I mean the superannuation industry is a predominantly boards of white mostly males with a better scattering of females now but we don't have diversity in terms of representative of what a lot of the membership is like Um, I think there is a real value add for having a couple of younger people on boards particularly around areas um, 
and this is a bit of an assumption, but it, to an extent it's true around technology, spaces like that. You know, we, you get people in your 30s that have just grown up in this space. You know, it's all second nature to them. And, and I think there's a lot to add there. Um, there, are, there are so many good people working inside the superannuation industry. Um, but unfortunately, like any industry, we only ever hear from those at the top and it's the same kind of people that are you know brought out every single time and I think that really misses the point of how many people are doing innovative great things in the in the space as well absolutely I think there's quite a few of those um sort of key people of influence out there you know you look at barefoot investor or people like that just trying to break the mold and do something different and um, bring a more educational lens to financial services as a whole? Yeah, I think so. And I think that the, um, seeing a lot of the newer funds come into the market too and kind of challenge that uh, mentality of, you know, how a superannuation is run from, you know, because they're not default funds, so they're not just getting members through a default perspective, they're actually having to go and search for members. So it's more about... Um, social media campaigns and and making it easy for members to fill out forms online and things like that. It's really brought the whole industry up another notch as well. So any more innovators in that space is just going to be a good thing. So would you say they're more like the niche funds? Um, Look, I tend to work in that space and they are more the niche funds. I'm, I'm a big advocate for all types of super funds. Like there is a real space for default funds there is a space for retail funds there's a space for corporate funds um what i wouldn't want to see is that 10 just big 10 mega super fund plan because then you become nothing but a number um, and your account is just adding to a, a giant pool of money but no one really cares about you at all and are you finding that our investors are looking for more ethical investment options definitely um, and this is a product of my background as well, having worked at Australian Ethical. Um, <laughs> but uh, look, I, I, I think there's, it's undoubtable that the ethical funds have done pretty well in the last financial years in the figures that are coming out now um, for the end of 30 June figures is that the avoidance of being in certain industries has helped the ethical funds at this space. Um but I think it's just people are becoming more knowledgeable about uh, how they want their money invested as well. So it's not just in super, but now there's banks out there too. So like Bank Australia is one where you, you can, you know, your money is not being invested into certain products and areas. Um, people realise that they have choices, I think. And, the, and that's where social media has been really interesting for that perspective because they're just getting access to that info that you wouldn't have really got if you just had to walk into a branch of your local bank in the main street. Now you can see what other options are out there. Um, so, you know, whether it's environment or whether it's social or, or, or whatever it is that's your area, whether you're pro-women or, you know, you can find uh, financial products these days that will will kind of meet your own ethics. And I think that's a really interesting and important part of life. Is it generational? Is it the younger ones that are more...? Um, I think it would be fair to say that in some of those ethical funds, a membership would be a younger membership. 
Um, but that's not across the board. So um, in a lot of cases, it's almost a time thing. You know, you need to put time aside to think about your superannuation or your banking. Um, and so I wouldn't want to make any generation generalisations about the memberships, but probably social media has contributed to that for our younger generation too. I think too, it's been a big push from, um, you know, large US type funds like BlackRock and things like that. Mm-hmm. They really have um, put the spotlight on ESG and changes to investment mandates and yep. um, I guess more attractive options for investors. You know, if you want to attract big instos these days, you do have to have that ESG lens mm-hmm. on things. And um, I think too, it's um, even some of the philanthropic options for um, older sort of board members or um, big companies like that, even like Wilson Asset Management, Jeff Wilson, he's doing a lot of things with sort of future funds and things like that. So, Yep. There's a lot of really good work being done in the industries across the board where there, there, I mean, there's a big push at the moment as well about um, literacy for Indigenous Australians as well, financial literacy in that space. And there's lots of really big institutions donating lots of time and effort into those spaces as well. So I think that uh, larger institutions are realising that they need to have that social lens on their business and people are looking for that as well as it's not just all about an investment return um, or some shiny marketing brochure. People are saying, show me some substance as well. Um, You know, if you're if you're taking profits every year, then how are you utilising that profit to make my world a better place? Yeah, absolutely. I love hearing giving back to the community type stories. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, I think that's um, about all we have time for today. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with, Simone? Um, no, I just, I guess I'd like to say that... Um, I'm really proud of where the compliance and risk and governance space has come in the in the 15 years I've been in the business, but also the respect that um, practitioners in this area are now generating as well. Um, I think that it's being recognised that uh, there needs to be a seat at the management table for CROs and for compliance people, you know, and and that's a really important step for every business as well. So, you know, to all of those out there that are slaving away doing compliance checklists and other things, <laughs> your, your work is being recognised now. That's, that's a great leaving comment. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Simone, and um, sharing all your insights with our listeners. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.